Just a minute. I'm coming. FBI, open up! Just a minute. Hello, everybody. This is Legal Man. Welcome to the show. This is going to be a good episode. I'm going to discuss the case of Marbury versus Madison, and I'm going to use some very standard narrative about it to elucidate why it's deceptive. And what people think they know about the case is just all upside down. And for people who don't know me, I'm a lawyer. I've practiced for more than 30 years. I'm America's most trusted and beloved lawyer because I expose the truth about the law and what a scam it really is. And I do it by doing shows like this. I'm also a self-certified master practitioner. I gave myself that award almost 20 years ago. And I recently awarded myself a Lifetime Achievement Award for all the great work I do in my podcast. So I've got that going for me. All right, this show runs a little bit over, so let's go ahead and get it started. So I wanted to do a show today. I want to do it about the case Marbury versus Madison. This is the most famous case probably the Supreme Court's ever issued. And it's interesting because everybody is a law student reads them. Every lawyer knows it. Most people have heard of it. And so many people who are these big-time constitutional conservatives, they trace back things to cases like this. And most people, they really don't have any idea what it's about, why the standard analysis of it is so wrong, why the standard discussion of it's all so completely and totally deceptive. And so I thought what I would do is I would take a standard discussion of it, which is about the most anybody's ever going to get who's not a lawyer who naturally thinks about it, and even most lawyers probably have never given Marbury versus Madison any real thought because you learn it very, very early in law schools. Like one of the very first cases you learn in so-called constitutional law. And it sets a precedent. And the way you study cases is you get this little kind of truncated version of the case. And you read that and you're supposed to pick out the holding and the reasoning and things like that. And you don't really discuss the nature of whether or not the case is wrong or right. This is the kind of case where it's just assumed that the Supreme Court's right. And the only way to get right answers, so-called, in law school is to give the answer that's expected and demanded. And I just think it's going to be helpful. I'm going to see if this kind of show works just because I want people to understand that the Supreme Court is not a co-equal branch. It's not It's none of the things they say, and I want to read a little bit of this and then talk about it as I go and kind of show you the way it's deceptive and the things they leave out. So what I've decided to use is just the Britannica Encyclopedia description of Marbury versus Madison. It's not very long, but it's not one paragraph either, and so I think it provides a little bit of fleshing out of the facts, and it has some truth in there, but it's kind of buried, and I don't think people recognize it. So uh, let's go ahead and start this. It says, Marbury versus Madison legal case, in which on February 24, 1803, the U.S. Supreme Court first declared an act of Congress unconstitutional, thus establishing the doctrine of judicial review. The court's opinion, written by Chief Justice John Marshall, is considered one of the foundations of U.S. constitutional law. I think all those things are true. I think one of the more interesting things in here is that the idea that it established a doctrine of judicial review. 
Does anybody see what sort of jumps off the page about that? At least it does to me, which is that if the opinion established the issue of judicial review, then the Constitution clearly doesn't. Because if there was a question about needing to establish it, then that means right there that the Constitution did not do that clearly. (laughs) As I've told people again and again and again, all the Supreme Court is there to do is to hear a case and rule on the case. Do I think that the Supreme Court doesn't have the ability to strike down a statute as unconstitutional if it applies? No, I absolutely do think it does have that, for sure. But the problem with this analysis is that it also pretends that the flip side of that is also true, which is that the Supreme Court can uphold something as so-called constitutional, and then we're all bound by it. See, that's the fundamental problem in this analysis, is that they treat those things the same, and they aren't the same. They're very, very different propositions. See, if the Supreme Court strikes something down as unconstitutional, what is the impact of that? The impact of that is to limit, limit the ability of the federal government to do something. It limits it, says it doesn't have that authority. What is the effect of upholding something as so-called constitutional? (laughs) It can be expanding the government's authority. See, those are very, very different. And the fact that they're treated the same, that the Supreme Court is either going to find it a constitutional or unconstitutional, um, are treated as though those are all part of the same analysis, but they're not. They're really not. And that fundamental distinction is completely and totally lost on 99.99% of the people and the lawyers and the courts and the discussion. It's just completely left out. The fact that the Supreme Court has the ability in an individual case to rule and thereby strike down a statute doesn't mean that the Supreme Court also has the ability to uphold these absurd statutes that are obviously unconstitutional and thereby make them constitutional. You see, that's very, very different. It's subtle, but it's really huge. And pretty much all of the problems you see around us with this expanded federal government over many, many, many decades and decades and decades as a result of this fundamental misunderstanding of both the Supreme Court's authority and position and its power. (laughs) All right, let's go on. This is the kind of background of the case. In the weeks before Thomas Jefferson's inauguration as president in March 1801, the lame duck Federalist Congress created 16 new circuit judgeships in the Judicial Act of 1801 and an unspecified number of new judgeships in the Organic Act, which Adams proceeded to fill with Federalists in an effort to preserve his party's control of judiciary and to frustrate the legislative agenda of Jefferson. And because he was among the last of those appointments, the so-called midnight appointments, William Marbury, a Federalist Party leader from Maryland, did not receive his commission before Jefferson became president. Once in office, Jefferson directed his Secretary of State, James Madison, to withhold the commission and Marbury petitioned the Supreme Court to issue a writ of mandamus to compel Madison to act. Okay, so you can see, even back then, with all these supposed founders and everything else, the government was just once again just being used by every side in this very political bullshit fashion to try to exert power. It's not a freedom machine. You hear how stupid this whole thing is? How ridiculous? all about trying to wrest control from the people and politicize everything. This idea that the Constitution protects everybody's rights and is this holy thing is a fantasy. The idea that these founders were some kind of holy men is a fantasy. 
The Louisiana purchase that Jefferson Jan threw was absurdly unconstitutional. It was just a land scam to hand out money and land to his friends. <laughs> it was totally unconstitutional, and everybody knew it. And here's another example of this ridiculous kind of political wrangling that was going on. So the case is an absurdity on its face. Let's continue. Marbury and his lawyer, former Attorney General Charles Lee, argued that signing and sealing the commission completed the transaction, that delivery in any event constituted a mere formality. But formality or not, without the actual piece of parchment, Marbury could not enter into the duties of office. Despite Jefferson's hostility, the court agreed to hear the case Marbury versus Madison in February 1803 term. You hear all this? You hear all this stupid detail crap? Think it have just as easily been not heard. <laughs> See, this is the way all these things are. The details are everything. And what you hear about is these general principles. They act like they've been exalted to this near godlike form. But most of the stuff is just sort of petty wrangling. Then it gets blown up into this big deal. Some scholars have questioned whether Marshall should have removed himself from the case because of his prior service as Adams Secretary of State. <laughs> you like this? The fucking Chief Justice was the former Secretary of State for the president that was issuing this thing. Think of the absurd conflict that was being allowed back then. This is just another example to me of how the belief in the founders and what they are and what they were and how holy they were and pure they were. It's just all a fantasy people have. See, it's just all a fantasy. This is such an absurd conflict, it's asinine. But it wasn't even raised back then because the whole thing was such an insider's game. It's just a very tiny group of people were controlling this government because the government was very small. But it was exactly as I've said again and again, just a rich man's game just a rich man's scam. That's all the Constitution was. Let's continue. Certainly, later judicial standards would have called for recusal, but at the time, only financial connections to a case led judges to step aside, as Marshall did in suits regarding Virginia lands in which he had an interest. <laughs> it's always the same. The Republicans, always quick to criticize Marshall, did not even raise the issue of the propriety of his sitting in the case, and mostly because it was such a little case who even cares. The issue directly presented by Marbury v. Madison can only be described as minor. By the time the court heard the case, the wisdom of Jefferson's desire to reduce the number of justices of the peace had been confirmed, and the Judiciary Act of 1801 had been repealed. Marbury's original term was almost half over, and most people, Federalists and Republicans alike, consider the case to be moot. Moot means the case no longer has any reason to be heard. And obviously, if the act's been repealed, and the guy's not going to get the thing anyway, what is the possible point? It is moot. It is moot, meaning that it can't be heard. And mootness is a reason the Supreme Court turns cases down all the time. But when it wants to, it chooses these cases and ignores these things, like I've always said. Procedural horseshit. But Marshall, despite the political difficulties involved, recognized that he had a perfect case with which to expound a basic principle, judicial review, which would secure the Supreme Court's primary role in constitutional interpretation. You see that? This case had nothing to do with the facts. It had to do with an opportunity for the court to run around and make a decision to try to grab power and to, and to start discussing it. <laughs> That's all it really is. It's not really about doing justice. If it was about justice, the thing would have been moot. And there's another reason uh, why it, it should have never even had much of an opinion, and they actually discussed that later. But you can see how it's already been set up that 
the holiness, the amazingness of martial law, it's just an inside scam, people. It's an inside scam. And the only reason it seems so amazing is because of the way it's presented to you. But if you see that some joker on the court today, Justice Sotomayor, was writing some opinion, and she had all these sort of same kinds of conflicts and everything else, would anybody consider it to be amazing? No. Nobody would today. You'd see it for what it was. But because it happened a couple hundred years ago, and the guys wore powdered wigs and, and fucking weird clothes, um, people think it's more legitimate than it is. Let's continue. The Chief Justice recognized the dilemma that the case posed to the court. If the court issued the writ of mandamus, Jefferson could simply ignore it because the court had no power to enforce it. <laughs> you seeing this? It has no power to enforce it. This idea that everybody's hands are tied when the Supreme Court rules, it's none of it's true. If the court was going to have the ability to actually be a co-equal branch, as we're told, and to, to rule over all these things, the, the authorities and the powers and all these things would be there inside the document. And there would have been massive discussion about it beforehand because the court is not elected. But the idea that it's a co-equal branch is absurd. All the federal courts except the Supreme Court only exist because Congress creates them. And they can simply get rid of them anytime they want. And most of the jurisdiction can just be eliminated by Congress itself. So the court wouldn't even have the authority or the power. There'd be no courts to even hear the cases. So the idea that the court was set up as this thing that we see today is just absurd. None of it's true. A co-equal branch, okay, can't be removed by the other branch. <laughs> a co-equal branch can't have its own people pulled out. <laughs> it can't by some other branch. That's not co-equal. The most powerful branch is the Congress. Congress can remove the president. Congress can remove the judges. Congress can remove the courts for almost all practical purposes except for the teeny tiny amount of original jurisdiction and appellate jurisdiction that is in the Constitution. There would be no appellate jurisdiction if there were no additional district courts and there's no obligation by Congress to create them. <laughs> so if there weren't any, there wouldn't be any additional cases being heard by the Supreme Court except for original jurisdiction. So any possible concept that the courts are a co-equal branch is just utterly made up. Just like the idea that the president is a co-equal branch. It's not true. None of that's true. It's just added on horseshit. Let's continue. If, on the other hand, the court refused to issue the writ, it would appear that the judicial branch of the government had backed down before the executive and that Marshall would not allow Okay, who cares how it appears? <laughs> who cares? Is that the judge of the judge to make it appear that they're not backing down to the executive? I thought it was to hear cases and to do justice. It's not. It's a political wrangling load of shit. Marshall was, a, was not a fan of Jefferson. Marshall was a political creature like all these other people. He was also quite corrupt. It's pretty damn clear. Anyone who does any investigation of it. <laughs> but all that's just swept away. The solution he chose has properly been termed a tour de force. <laughs> Who says? It's just a corrupt load of shit. It's just all these constitutional conservatives who just blather on about it and just genuflect to the Constitution and these fools. Uh, they've, they've turned it into that. And then law professors and constitutional so-called experts just push it all the time. In one stroke, Marshall managed to establish, establish, the power of the court as the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution, to chastise the Jefferson administration for its failure to obey the law and to avoid having the court's authority challenged by the administration. <laughs> uh, he established it. 
he established. I thought the Constitution establishes the law and the authority of each one of the branches. Apparently, courts just do it for themselves. Let's continue. Marshall, adopting a style that would mark all of his major opinions, reduced the case to a few basic issues. In other words, he mischaracterized the case. <laughs> he asked three questions. Did Marbury have the right to the commission? If he did and his right had been violated, did the law provide him with a remedy? And three, if it did, would the proper remedy be a writ of mandamus from the Supreme Court? The last question, the crucial one, dealt with the jurisdiction of the court. And in normal circumstances, it would have been answered first since a negative response would have obviated the need to decide the other issues. But that would have denied Marshall the opportunity to criticize Jefferson for what the Chief Justice saw as a president's flouting of the law. Did you hear that? See, that's a very important point, because ultimately the court finds it doesn't have jurisdiction. And jurisdiction is fatal. If you don't have jurisdiction, the court really can't move forward. It's not that it shouldn't move forward, it can't move forward. Okay, That's one of the main basis for any judicial authority. It must have jurisdiction. And in order to have jurisdiction, you have to have personal and subject matter. And this is another reason I've explained to people over and over again, the Supreme Court's rulings are not the law of the land. They don't apply to everybody. They only apply to the people in the case. That's it. It's all they apply to. <laughs> they don't bind anybody else. And this was a great example of it, because if Marshall had had any actual integrity, as opposed to just this political horse shittery that he was pulling, he would have just said, look, he would have addressed number three, which is jurisdiction first, found there is no jurisdiction in this, and that's it. Would have washed the case out. You never would have heard all this analysis. But as you just heard them explain, he used it as an opportunity to simply go up there and pontificate and to run people down. I've been on the receiving end of this kind of horse shit from courts all the time. You can't sue the courts for libeling you or slandering you from the bench. You can't. They say anything they want. Why? Because they give themselves immunity. Is it in the Constitution? Do they have immunity in the Constitution? No, they don't have any immunity in the Constitution for any of this shit. <laughs> All the stuff they say, they should be subject to liability. <laughs> they can't just make shit up, run people down. They do it all the time. They do it with impunity. Why? Because the system is set up as a scam. That's why. Let's continue. Following the arguments of Marbury's counsel on the first two questions, Marshall held that the validity of the commission existed once the president signed it and transmitted it to the Secretary of State to affix the seal. Presidential discretion ended there, for the political decision had been made and the Secretary of State had only a ministerial task to perform, i.e. delivering the commission. Like anyone else to obey, Marshall drew a careful and lengthy distinction between the political acts of the president and the secretary in which the courts had no business interfering and the simple administrative execution that, governed by law, the judiciary could review. Again, this is another one of these things. It's just kind of a made-up deal. Uh, they could have easily come down and found that this is not justiciable, that this is a political decision, and political decisions are not something the court can get involved with. But because the only people who ever have get to comment on this Supreme Court is the Supreme Court and everybody else's opinions don't matter. His so-called analysis is the only thing that stands. <laughs> it doesn't matter what they say. They could have just as easily found that this is not justiciable, meaning that the courts don't have a say because it's a political decision and courts aren't there to decide political matters. But they didn't. They decided this other thing for all these reasons I've already explained, which is that he already knew that finding that it wasn't a political decision wasn't going to have any impact because he was going to toss it out anyway and find there was no jurisdiction. So all of it was just a big show. 
And so to use this case to later build upon the so-called authority of what's discussed in the case makes no sense anyway if you look at actual legal analysis because the holding of the case is that there's no jurisdiction. So everything else is dicta and it's horseshit and there's nothing to build upon. But it's used as this foundational principle, as I've already showed you, as this article says. So everything about this case is deceptive and a load of shit. And the idea that Marshall was a genius and all this other stuff, again, just made up shit. See, it's just all made up. Let's continue. Having decided that Marbury had the right to the commission, Marshall next turned to the question of remedy. And once again, found in the plaintiff's favor, holding that having this legal title to the office, Marbury has a consequent right to the commission, a refusal to deliver which is a plain violation of that right for which the laws of this country afford him a remedy. Okay. <laughs> again, just made up shit, could have found it anything else. Anything else could have been found, but they act like this is some big deal because it's a so-called holding by the Supreme Court. After castigating Jefferson and Madison for sporting away the rights of others, Marshall addressed the third crucial question. Although he could have held that the proper remedy was a writ of mandamus from the Supreme Court because the law that had granted the court the power of mandamus in original rather than appellate jurisdiction, the Judiciary Act of 1789 was still in effect. He instead declared that the court had no power to issue such a writ because the relevant provision of the act was unconstitutional. Right. <laughs> the Supreme Court's authority, original jurisdiction authority, is given by the Constitution, not by statute. The only thing that Congress can do is, is add appellate jurisdiction. <laughs> That's it. Section 13 of the Act, he argued, was inconsistent with Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, which states in part that the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction in all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, and those in which the state shall be a party. And that in all other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction. In thus surrendering the power derived from the 1789 statute and giving Jefferson a technical victory in the case, Marshall gained for the court a far more significant power, that of judicial review. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So the Constitution says what the original jurisdiction is of the court. That's what it's about. This statute in 1789 attempted to create additional original jurisdiction for the court. But it can't because the Constitution said that in all other cases before I mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction. That's it. See, so even back then, the very first few Congresses, they were jacking around with all this stuff. None of it was set in stone. All of it's made up. All these things could have gone in a different direction. See, all of these so-called foundational principles, they're just an illusion. They're just a creation. They're all just a control system. Every single one of these things is just a gigantic control system. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's funny to me that people think these things are such a big deal. All right, let's listen to what they call the impact. Marshall's masterful verdict has been widely hailed. <laughs> it has? I think it's a joke. I think it's a blatant fraud. But because all the so-called experts from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, who are just apologists for the state, all push it, and it's taught in law school, and everybody bows down to it, and everybody's taught to bow down to it, and everybody ever thinks about anything else, because any case you bring up, every judge will always constantly do this because it makes the judges powerful. Of course the judges love it. Of course it's repeated endlessly. But it doesn't make it true. See, it doesn't make it true. And this is the part I always try to explain to people. 
Just because something has been the law for a long time, so-called, just because lots of people believe it, doesn't make it true. All it does is just create an almost impenetrable amount of pressure on people to go along with this stupid shit. <laughs> Let's finish it up here. In the face of attacks on the judiciary launched by Jefferson and his followers, Marshall needed to make a strong statement to maintain the status of the Supreme Court as the head of a co-equal branch of government. It's not a co-equal branch. I've already explained it to you. By asserting the power to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional, which the court would not exercise again for more than half a century, Marshall claimed for the court a paramount position as interpreter of the Constitution. (laughs) It almost never declares stuff unconstitutional. The problem with the Supreme Court is that it constantly stamps and gives its imprimatur to laws that are clearly not constitutional. But because people believe that the Supreme Court is the so-called arbiter for all times and all peoples of the constitutionality or the unconstitutionality of something, it's allowed the government to expand and expand and expand under the guise that it's all legitimate. See, that's the heart of it. That's the heart of how it works. And this piece of shit opinion is the heart of the heart. (laughs) Let's finish up the last paragraph. Although Marbury v. Madison set an abiding precedent for the court's power in that area, it did not end debate over the court's purview, which has continued for more than two centuries. Of course it has, because it's just a made-up thing. The court can't create its own authority. If this is a government of, by, and for the people, we have to look to the document itself. And it doesn't matter if it's been misinterpreted. It doesn't matter if it's been expanded improperly. If that's what created law, then the court could never reverse itself. <laughs> that's all. Never could have had Brown versus Board of Education or any of these others that are big, famous, so-called reversals. Just because something's been in the law, so-called, meaning it's been an opinion for many years, doesn't make it true or right or anything else. This is the problem. This is so much of the problem. Trace back to just this kind of case. Let's continue it up. In fact, it is likely that the issue will never be fully resolved. But the fact remains that the court has claimed and exercised the power of judicial review through most of U.S. history. And, as Judge Learned Hand noted more than a century later, the country is used to it by now. Who gives a fuck about that? They're used to the income tax, too. Taxing your fucking wage doesn't make it true or constitutional or legitimate. It just doesn't. See? So they just claim it and exercise it, but they don't actually have it. See that? That's, that's the fundamental basis. That's what's actually being said here. And they just gloss over it, and then they throw this shit in about learned hand, which makes people think uh, it's important because he's got a name named Learned. Sounds like he's an important, brilliant, brilliant judicial figure. Oh. <laughs> Moreover, the principle fits well with the government's commitment to checks and balances. We've investigated ourselves and determined we did nothing wrong. There's no such thing as a check and balance between the same government. That makes no sense. Anybody who wants to read about it needs to read Calhoun's Disquisition on Government. It's very unreadable, but it fucking explains how this shit makes no sense. The state's authority and power were there. That's what was there to check the federal government. The federal government doesn't check itself. Nothing checks itself. That's not a check and balance. If I'm in charge of telling you whether or not I have the power and whether I've overstepped it, that's not a check and balance. This is the delusion that people operate under, this absurd Chinese paper wall, the idea that the court keeps the Congress in power because it could 
rule something unconstitutional, which shows great deference and all this other shit. You see how it all fits together? Few jurists can argue with Marshall's statement of principle near the end of his opinion that a law repugnant to the Constitution is void and that courts as well as other departments are bound by that instrument. Okay, I agree. No one can argue with it, but no one applies it because there's no impact if you just continue to apply the law even though you obviously think it's unconstitutional and you just wait for the courts to tell you, which is what everybody does. That's what everybody does now. Of course, if the law is unconstitutional, you shouldn't apply it because it's not a law. Of course. But how does everybody think we know whether something's constitutional or not? We have to wait for the Supreme Court to tell us. See, so all this stuff is very deceptive. It's all a very deep con. And until people start being willing to accept the fact that they've been so fundamentally lied to, and that all the so-called experts are either liars or fantastically confused or dishonest. That's it. You're never going to sort any of this stuff out. You're just never going to. And as long as people approach the Constitution and the founders as virtually a religion and worship them and imagine that these incredible individuals are just such pure motives, nothing's ever going to get sorted. And the reason that's, that's all promoted is because it, it provides for this gigantic state behemoth that then both sides pretend... Uh, to fight for. But anyone can see the fact that if we have to worry that someone's going to get elected or someone's going to get put on the court and therefore all the government's authority is going to massively expand, then whatever the Constitution is or says or does, it doesn't limit the government and it's not legitimate. That's all. It's just that simple. And it's not an answer to say that, well, what's your answer? What's your answer? What should we do? Still the greatest system ever. None of those things are true. That's why I do the Spooner series. But hopefully this show gave you an idea of what a deception, all this other crap. You see what it is. You see what it was. It's just a typical kind of thing from any other kind of joker that's up there in government, jacking around, personal preferences, petty differences. And we're not even getting into the details of all this other stuff. But that's the reality of what this world is, and that's the reality of what that decision is. And I just, it offends me that people run around and pretend that it is something it's not, and then use it to justify additional bullshit. Anybody who reads that actual description from Britannica can see, if you understand how to read between the lines, what I've said is true. What I've said is true. <laughs> uh, and the Supreme Court just isn't what people imagine. And the fact that everybody continues to pretend it is on both sides shows you that both sides work together to expand the power and the authority of government and that all these other pretenses are just fakes and frauds that's all that's all it is so well anyway i hope that was helpful for people it's an important topic it really is and i hope the way i went about approaching it makes sense to you and gives people at least a jumping off point I may do more stuff about the Supreme Court, which I have many times in the past, but I think it's helpful. So I'll leave it at that. I'm back from shooting the movie The Jones Plantation. It was really fun. It was really difficult. We were cold a lot, but I think we got a lot of great stuff. I'm glad I don't have to edit it for a variety of reasons, but we hope it's going to be out this summer. And as I get more information about it, where it's going to be released and where kind of, you know, theaters it'll be in and where you'll be able to, to watch it and things like that, I'll let people know. But 
we had a really good time. I think we got a lot of great memeable events in there, a lot of great memeable lines and uh, scenes. I hope my character is very memorable. I think it's going to be. So, and for people who uh, want to follow me, I'm still on Twitter. I'm Legal Man at US Law Review, and I want to thank the people in Patreon who support my show and make it worth my time to make the show. I really do. I I really appreciate those people who put their money where their mouth is. So thank you guys. And beyond that, I think I'm just going to go ahead and wrap it up. You guys have been a great audience as usual. Everybody have a nice another day wherever you are. Take care. Thank you, everybody. Let's put your hands together one more time. For Legal Man. Great show. Thank you.